long time ago. And God's judgment was coming over the horizon. Specifically, God's judgment was coming in the form of destruction and exile at the hands of Babylon. But even though God's coming judgment was already set in stone, he still sent Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet in the truest sense of the word, standing in between God and his people, proclaiming God's word to them, even though they won't listen. Jeremiah's preaching isn't motivated by how people respond to it. He's motivated by the calling that God gave him and the words that God put in his mouth. Last week we saw that God is the main character of this book, not Jeremiah. And a recurring theme throughout the book is that Jeremiah's words aren't really his. They belong to God. But today we're going to talk about another theme in the book of Jeremiah. And that theme is the word covenant. Covenant is a major theme throughout the rest of the Old Testament and really throughout the entire Bible. The word covenant isn't used frequently these days, but it figures prominently in Jeremiah. So what makes Jeremiah's talk of covenant unique? And why should we concern ourselves today with a prophet from 2,600 years ago talking about a word that we never use? That's the question that we'll be talking about this morning. So open up to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 4. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that through all the ups and downs of Monday through Saturday, the joys and the sorrows, the victories and the defeats, that we can look forward to Sunday. Not just as the day that we get together with some people that we like, not just as the day that we have something to do, not just as the day that we get a little bit more dressed up than usual and go to church, but we look forward to Sunday because we remember that Sunday is the day that the tomb was found empty. And regardless of how much our lives, Monday through Saturday, may feel like a tomb, the tomb is empty on Sunday. And Father, remind us of that today and remind us of that each week. Be with this church. I pray that we would do good ministry here, uh, not just today, but everywhere else. Uh, the Bible studies that we lead, the ways that we serve, the initiatives and events and causes that we champion. I pray that they would all be honoring to you and beneficial for the people of God and beneficial for those who don't know you as well. Father, again, we give you all the glory. We thank you for Sunday. We thank you for the book of Jeremiah that we read this morning. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, in Scripture, a covenant is a binding pledge. It is an oath-bound promise. A covenant can be conditional, meaning that two parties both have to fulfill their ends of the deal, or else the covenant is broken. Or it can be unconditional, meaning that if one party fails, the covenant still stands. A covenant is kind of like a modern-day contract or agreement, but it's also much bigger than that. The end goal of God's covenant with mankind in Scripture is a phrase that we see repeated throughout the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people. 
I will be your God and you will be my people. One of the earliest covenants that we see, one of the earliest examples of this covenant that we see is in Genesis 12. That's when God graciously calls Abram to a life of faith and obedience. God promises that Abraham will be the father of a great nation and that that nation will bless all families of the earth. Just a few chapters later in Genesis 15, God promises that Abraham's descendants will one day have the promised land of Canaan to call home. This covenant, this binding pledge, this oath bound promise is passed down to Abraham's offspring through Isaac and Jacob. But this covenant does appear to have a bit of a hiccup along the way, specifically in the form of Egypt. Abraham's descendants end up as slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, suffering terribly. When you're a slave for that long, you can't blame someone for worrying that maybe that promise, maybe that covenant from so long ago failed. Or maybe those people forgot about that promise entirely. But in his good timing, God remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham and his offspring. He intervenes. He hears the people's cries in Egypt and he leads them out of slavery under Moses's leadership. And when the people get out, we read this in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse three. This is God speaking to Moses. Thus, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So as God reintroduces himself to his people, he makes it clear. You belong to me now. I am your God. You are my people. He gives them the law to instruct them about his character, to guide them in daily living, to set them apart from the surrounding nations. Passages like Leviticus 26 make the expectations and consequences of this covenant very clear. If they obey this law, they'll be blessed. If they don't, they'll be punished. The Israelites agree to keep this covenant. After all that God has done for them, how could they not? He sent plagues to Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He provided them with manna from heaven. The least that they can do is follow his rules. He probably knows what's best for them anyway. And just take it from Pharaoh, you don't want to get on God's bad side. That's where we see in Exodus chapter 24, when the people agree. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, 
all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. Thus begins a long and beautiful story of faith, worship, and obedience. Right? Well, not exactly. In Exodus 32, not long after what we just read, the Israelites drop the ball by making a golden calf, a false god, and worshiping it. But not to worry. Moses holds them accountable, and they renew the covenant that they just broke. A blip on the radar, really. After all, the Israelites are still new to this whole covenant thing. They'll get the hang of it with time, and they'll get better. But then you get to Numbers 14. The Israelites again fail to obey God, this time refusing to enter the promised land the way he told them to. This time the punishment is more severe. They're forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that rebellious generation has passed. By the time Moses is old, he's gotten a pretty good feel for these Israelites. So when he's about to die, he reiterates the covenant that God made with them. In Deuteronomy 28, he reminds them of the blessings that God has promised for obedience and the punishment that God has promised for disobedience. And once again, in Deuteronomy 29, the people agree, just like they did in Exodus 24. Moses' successor Joshua does the same exact thing near the end of his life. He reminds the people of the covenant they've entered into. He challenges them to keep it. And we see that passage in Joshua 24, starting in verse 14. Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose today whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered. I love this response, by the way. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. He's talking about us. That doesn't sound like us. We wouldn't do something like that. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. We're serious this time. Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Joshua said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you 
and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. All sounds pretty good, right? They really seemed a little bit more intent on obeying God this time. But then we get to the book of Judges. And yet again, things don't go too well. A horrible pattern emerges where the people sin, they face God's judgment, they complain, they repent and promise to do better, and then God delivers them. But then the pattern starts all over again. You know, maybe having a king will help. If the people have a king to lead the way, perhaps they'd be less prone to abandon God. Well, you may have guessed it. Kings don't help either. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, also recorded in 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the people once again break the covenant. Over and over and over again, Joshua's harsh words prove true. These people simply are not able to serve the Lord. Their long track record of failure proves it. And that's the people who Jeremiah preaches to, starting in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods? even though they are no gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Verse 20. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you become degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. 
How can you say I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness and her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless. For I have loved foreigners And after them, I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise, save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. The Israelites of Jeremiah's day have walked in the footsteps of those who came before them. They too have broken the covenant. And they, too, have abandoned God. All of them are guilty. How could any of them even dare to suggest that they're innocent? They've worshipped false gods. They've sinned incessantly. They've lusted after the surrounding nations. And all along, they have loved it. Wickedness is all they're good at. It's the only thing they know how to do well. Hence the predicament they find themselves in. They're being punished by God. Just like Moses and Joshua warned them. It sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? But hey, that's why Jeremiah is here, right? Jeremiah will whip them into shape. He's got the word of God in his mouth. A few good sermons and these people will be as good as new. Jeremiah will preach. They'll come up to the front of the sanctuary when Jeremiah gives the invitation. They'll cry out in repentance. God will hear them. God will save them. They'll renew the covenant and all will be well, just like all those times before. Right? Not this time. Remember what God told Jeremiah last week? Not only will these people not hear him, they will actively fight against him. This time, things really do look hopeless. You know, to be totally honest, a high majority of Jeremiah's preaching is bad news. It's bad news. But even in this hellish landscape, even in the nightmare that is Jeremiah's world, God still displays his grace. God still holds out promises For his sinful people, there are still tiny glimmers of hope. In chapter 32, Jeremiah preaches that someday, after the exile in Babylon is over, God's people will come back. He symbolically puts his money where his mouth is by buying a plot of land in Judah. In chapter 25, Jeremiah gets even more specific, saying that their exile in Babylon will only last 70 years. It won't be forever. And then in chapter 29, God famously tells his sinful people that even after all their rebellion, 
He still has a future for them. He still has a hope for them. They may not be faithful to the covenant, but he still is. But there's still one more question to ask. What's to stop the same old pattern from happening again? Are God's people going to spend the rest of eternity locked into the same old dance that they've done for generations? That dance where they renew the covenant with their lips, fall into sin, face punishment from God, and then are eventually delivered, but then starting the pattern all over again. Is that their lot in eternity? No. Because in Jeremiah 31... One of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. God makes a promise. And this promise is much bigger than returning to a plot of land. This promise is much more far-reaching than a group of people stuck in Babylon for 70 years. We see that promise in chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This passage falls into what's referred to as the book of consolation. After all the bad news that Jeremiah has had to preach... These are likely consoling words. In fact, these are likely the most joyful words that God will ever put in Jeremiah's mouth. This is the only place in the entire Old Testament where a new covenant is mentioned. And this new covenant is a long-term promise. A promise that one day God will address the root cause of his people's repeated rebellion. That's their sinful hearts. One day they will all truly and fully know him. One day they will all be forgiven once and for all. One day he will be their God and they will be his people in the fullest sense. You know, the old covenant wasn't the problem. The problem was the people. In Jeremiah 17, verse 1, we read this. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. In chapter 30, verse 12, God says, Your hurt is incurable, and your wind, your wound is grievous. But a new day is coming. A new covenant is coming. When hard hearts will be softened. When the grievous wound of sin will be cured. Ezekiel makes a similar promise in his preaching. God says in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A new covenant. Warm, soft, living, beating, obedient hearts. Forgiveness. A final cure to the unceasing pattern of rebellion that mankind is clearly unable to stop by their own power. And it's all because God graciously intervenes like he did back in Egypt. And that day, finally, after all this waiting, he will be their God and they will be his people once and for all. Imagine the joy that Jeremiah must have felt as he spoke these words after all of his anguish. The only question now is when. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, as Jesus sits in the upper room with his disciples, celebrating the Passover meal, preparing to go to the cross, Jesus takes the wine and says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31 extensively. In fact, he gives the one longest Old Testament quotation in the entire New Testament. And then we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, wrapping it all up. But as it is, he, Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The new covenant that Jeremiah must have looked so forward to, but never got to see, is inaugurated by Jesus Christ. He is the solution to the problem of sin. It's by his death and resurrection alone that covenant breakers can be forgiven, saved, transformed into worshipful and obedient servants. He can make us into friends. He can make us into children. And this new covenant doesn't just include Abraham's descendants. It's not just good news for a relatively small group of people stuck in Babylon 2,600 years ago. It's good news for all who believe in Jesus from all nations of the earth. Now, you might argue that you aren't a covenant breaker. You never agreed to any covenant with God the way the ancient Israelites did. And you're right. But you were created by God just like they were. You owe him your worship and obedience, just like they did. And you have failed. I have failed, just like they did. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Sounds like it could have come out of Jeremiah chapter 2. Paul's point is this. We have a lot in common with those people who worship the golden calf, fail to enter the promised land, 
honored God with their lips, but not their hearts, got in trouble, cried out to God and promised that things would be different and that they really would obey if he would just help them out this one last time and then failed. We're the same as they are because we, too, are descendants of the first covenant breakers, Adam and Eve. We, too, have this built in propensity to rebellion. What scripture refers to as our sinful nature. You may not have agreed to any covenant, but your heart is just as hard. Your wound is just as incurable. You deserve punishment and I deserve punishment just as much as they did. Truthfully, we deserve worse than slavery in Egypt. We deserve worse than exile in Babylon. We deserve eternal judgment, eternal exile away from the presence of God. But thanks be to God that he has intervened once again. God's intervention was good news for sinners back in Judah in 600 B.C. And it's good news for sinners and fishers in 2018 A.D. God has inaugurated a new covenant through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And we are the beneficiaries of it. He gives his spirit to cold, dead, rock-hard hearts like ours. He forgives us once and for all by Jesus' broken body and shed blood. He makes us able to serve the Lord. He fulfills the promise that he will be our God and we will be his people once and for all. And we look forward to the day when Christ returns when he will bring his kingdom with him to establish on earth as it is in heaven, when we will see this new covenant in all of its beauty and see the God who fulfilled it in all of his glory. This is God's binding pledge. This is his oath-bound promise. You know, Jeremiah had a lot to weep about. Again, he lived when times were bad. He preached a lot of bad news. But I imagine when he preached Jeremiah 31, when he got those words from God, he didn't weep tears of sorrow. He wept tears of joy. And I pray that we would do the same thing as we step back and remember that we are beneficiaries of this new covenant. And like the covenant back in Exodus that had to be sealed with blood, the covenant that we benefit from was sealed by blood as well the blood of Jesus Christ, on the cross for our sins. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for history that we have recorded in your word, this long history of people like us pushing back against you, people like us, Kicking against the goads, as Christ told Paul. People like us rebelling and falling short and failing. And yet time and time and time again, you have proven yourself gracious. You have proven yourself faithful, even though we are so often faithless. You have proven yourself holy, even though we are sinful. You have proven yourself pure, even though we are unclean. And Father, we are grateful that 
even after all of our sin, even after our rebellion, even after our impurity, that we can be reconciled to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would live every single day as people who have been reconciled to you. That when we fall short, when we fail, which we will still do, that we will remember your faithfulness, that we will remember your Son, the one who didn't fall short, the one who didn't fail, the one who didn't sin. It's by his blood that we're saved. It's by his broken body that we're reconciled to you. Father, remind us of that day in and day out. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.